Late one night at a bar in Maryland, Daryl Davis had just finished playing his gig at the Silver Dollar Lounge. Daryl was a young black man, an old school, rock and roll, boogie-woogie piano player. He'd actually come up in the movement when rock and roll exploded onto the American scene. He played with all the greats, and now he was traveling around to little bars doing what he loved most, playing that rock and roll on his piano. And after that show in Maryland, a white guy walked up to him, middle-aged, and he said, man, I loved your music tonight. That was fantastic. So Daryl said, well, thank you so much, brother. Have a seat. Let's talk. So they talked for a bit, and then the guy said, you know, I've never heard a black man play the piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. And Daryl laughed because he'd come up in the movement. He'd played with Jerry Lee Lewis. He was friends with Jerry Lee Lewis. He and Jerry Lee Lewis learned from the same people. So he just said, well, who do you think taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play? And the guy said, nobody taught him how to play. He said, Jerry Lee Lewis invented rock and roll, man. So Daryl decided to let it go, not make a big deal of it. And they talked on for a bit. And then at the end of their conversation, the guy said, you know, you're also the first black man I've ever sat down and shared a drink with. So Daryl thought that was a strange thing to say. And it made him curious with this man being middle-aged, wondering what took him so long. And so he said, well, why is that? And then the man looked over at his friend who was with him, and his friend says, go on, tell him. And the man looks back at Daryl, and he says, it's because I'm a proud member of the Ku Klux Klan. How awkward do you think this moment had to have been? How do you think Daryl felt when all of that difference between them was just dumped onto the conversation. And what do you think happened next? As these two men sat across the table, and yet they were worlds apart. I'll give you three options. A, Daryl didn't say anything. He got up, he went home, and he blew the guy up on social media. Or B, Good old-fashioned bar fight broke out. Or C, something so unexpectedly beautiful. Do you know how the kingdom of God actually advances in this world? It's one of those questions we kind of take for granted and we just think we know the answer until we're asked it. Do you know how the kingdom of God advances in this world. It's through moments just like this one. Moments where two people with a world of difference between them, different stories, different cultures, different worldviews, come face to face. The kingdom of God advances in this world through moments just like this when the Spirit of God leads the people of God to come face to face with the other. 
And do you know what the first controversy was that the church had to face? It's here in the book of Acts, and it's all throughout the New Testament. It was very simple. It was figuring out what do we do with all of those other people? What do we do with them? Because after Pentecost, the church saw the Spirit working and doing things that were far outside their categories and their Jewish comfort zones. They saw the Spirit of God go out to people that were unlike them, those that were the objects of their prejudice and their xenophobia. They saw the Spirit doing things that didn't make sense, and it challenged their understanding of what they really thought God was up to in this world. Because the Spirit was going out to all of those other people. The Spirit was going out to the Gentiles. And yet this shouldn't have been anything new, right? We've been in the series for a year now. And we've seen over and over again how this was God's plan from the very beginning. In Genesis, God put his cards 100% on the table when he first made those promises of redemption to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you and through your barren wife, I will bless the nations of the earth. Through you, I will be a blessing to the whole world. And God kept reminding Israel of that over and over and over again, that this is who he was, and this is what he does. This is what he's about. He reminded them when he spared that other woman, that Canaanite prostitute named Rahab, and he gave her a home, and a husband, and a people, and a little boy named Boaz. And then that little boy, Boaz, would become a grown man, and then he would marry himself, an other kind of woman, a Moabite widow named Ruth. And from the bodies of these two women, the king of kings would enter into this world. He was reminding Israel of his purposes for the world, when they saw nation after nation come and pay tribute to Solomon at his temple and marvel at his God, and Israel never had to lift up a sword or a spear, they came in peace. And when Israel forgot that, he sent them the prophets, Isaiah in particular, who prophesied that the Lord would make them a light to the nations and that through them he would gather all of the others unto himself. He sent Jonah to Nineveh, to the very people that Israel hated most. The Assyrians were brutal. You know what they lined their streets with? Bodies on pikes. They were brutal beyond measure, and God told Jonah, go to them so that I can be merciful. And when they repented, Jonah was enraged, was he not? He was angry at their repentance. And he said to God, he said, I knew that you were like this. I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, abounding in abundant, steadfast love. I knew that you would be forgiving to all those other people. You know, Israel's problem was that they always wanted to either be like the nations they didn't want anything to do with the nations. 
And they were never willing to share in God's heart for the nations. And so when we get to the book of Acts, we're seeing God make good on all those promises. The church was awakened to that really hard to swallow, unavoidable reality of God's heart for the world. Why? For God so loved the world. That's why. Because they saw God loving those they hated. They saw God bringing in those that they have always wanted to keep out. They saw God accepting those that didn't have it all together, who were raised with different values, who didn't speak the same language, who had different worldviews and different ways of living, because God was drawing all of the others unto himself. From the beginning, the church saw the Spirit moving outside of all their categories and their comfort zones, and they had to decide something very very simple. Do we want to be a part of it? Because God was going out to all those other people. And so were they really willing to go with him? Even Peter had to face this question. The story in this passage is where all of that began. It's where the church, which up to this point had been Jewish converts, it's where they started to having to wrestle with the size and scope of God's mission. Because Acts 10 is the story of that first Gentile convert, a man named Cornelius. And what we see in this story is how the Spirit brings Peter more fully into what God is doing by bringing him face to face with the other and reshaping how Peter viewed the world. Peter was in Joppa. Ironically and poetically, the exact same city where Jonah tried to flee from going to the Gentiles centuries before. Peter went up to, that, to the rooftop to pray And while he was praying, he had a really strange vision where he saw this sheet being lowered down from heaven. And on the inside were all sorts of animals that were unlawful to eat because they were unclean according to Jewish law. And the Lord says to Peter, rise up, Peter, kill and eat, feast. But Peter refuses. He refuses three times. Because eating any unclean animal would have made him ceremonially unclean. And to understand this vision, we have to remember the dietary laws from the law that Peter doesn't want to break. You can find him in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all sorts of laws where God forbids Israel from eating anything that was considered unclean. So they had to distinguish all sorts of different things about their food. They had to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. So they had to ask questions like, well, does this animal have a split hoof or a solid hoof? Does this animal chew its cud or does it not chew its cud? So they could eat beef, praise God, but they could not eat pork. Pig was off limits. They could not enjoy those spare ribs with 50-50 rub cooked for five hours and 45 minutes. Their man time suffered. Being a faithful Israelite meant 
that they had to constantly be aware of what it was that they were eating. They had to be cautious about what they ate because breaking these laws meant that they were ceremonially unclean. They were cut off from the people until they were purified. And if they were not, then they were liable for judgment. Now, all these laws were about making Israel holy and set apart from all other nations. Yes, because God was holy and he was set apart from all other gods. And these laws were intended to lead God's people into deeper communion with him, not just be kept. They're supposed to lead the people to deeper communion with God. And these dietary laws became a major, major contributor to Israel's identity for 1,500 years until Acts 10. And in this vision, Jesus comes to Peter with all of these unclean animals And he seems to tell him to do the unthinkable. He says, kill and eat, Peter. Why don't you start with the pig? You'll love it. I call it bacon. (laughs) But again, Peter refused three times. And then finally, Jesus says, Peter, do not call common what I have made clean. Now, you can imagine for a second how much this confused Peter because this vision turned one of Israel's greatest identity markers completely on its head. Because the Spirit was at work, leading Peter to a deeper understanding of what Jesus had done and what Jesus was doing. But first, some walls had to come crashing down in his heart. And Jesus was arranging all the pieces. And the Spirit told Peter, he said, three men are coming for you. And you will go with them. And don't be afraid. I've sent them to you. So Peter goes with them. A day later, they arrive in Caesarea. And he brought a number of the brothers from the church in Joppa with him. And there, waiting for them in Caesarea, was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of the Roman army. And friends, we cannot just let those words pass us by. Because by virtue of that, Cornelius represented everything that was wrong with the world to the Jews and to Peter. Cornelius was part of the system, man. Cornelius was a part of the most brutal army that ever walked this earth. Savage in their understandings of justice and power. Cornelius represented that totalitarian and oppressive rule of the whole Roman Empire. Cornelius represented a culture that was filled with debauchery and vice, alternative sexualities and different worldviews. To Peter, Cornelius represented all of those other people. And yet the Spirit had led him there to face the one who is completely other from him in this awkward, unexpected, face-to-face encounter. And I'd bet this was the first time Peter had ever stepped foot in a Gentile's house. And you can imagine how uncomfortable he felt. And he's hesitant, and quite frankly, he's conflicted. Because two things are now at war with each other. It's his Jewish culture 
and Christ. Two things now slamming together that are not mixing. And you can hear it in the words that he says. Because he says, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any person unclean. It's a fascinating statement. He's trying to figure all this out. He's trying to put all this together as one of the pillars of his identity is dissolving before him. So in the first part, he says it's unlawful for me to associate with anyone from another nation. Here's the thing. That's not true. It's not. Peter's referencing a specific interpretation of the law, not the law itself. During this time in Peter's day and centuries before him, there was all sorts of debate and different schools of thought about how to interpret the law. And specifically, there was all sorts of debate about how much Jews should or shouldn't associate with Gentiles to prevent from becoming unclean and defiled. And so, of course, these dietary laws made it to where Israel had to be extremely cautious about what they ate and what they did. But since Gentiles didn't have the same dietary laws, over time they decided, well, maybe we should start just avoiding Gentiles altogether. Laws about food started to become laws about people. So if they should avoid pork, then maybe we should avoid the people that eat it too. And a new law was created. And yet, how does that law mix with the heart of a God whose desire is to bless the nations? And so when Peter says it's unlawful for him to associate with anyone from another nation, that's just his culture talking. His culture was shaping how he viewed the world and all those other people around him which is actually a pretty fascinating insight if you really think about it because this helps us see how Peter actually interpreted the Great Commission up to this point. He heard it as go into all the world, baptizing the Jews in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter believed in a gospel that went out to my tribe, my tongue, my nation, all the people that look like me, talk like me, walk like me, live like me. And we can see why all of these walls in Peter's heart had to come crashing down if he was going to be a part of what Christ was doing in the world. Those walls that would exclude the very people that Jesus died to include. The Spirit was reshaping how Peter saw the world because Peter also said, but God has shown me something different. That I shouldn't call anyone unclean. The Spirit was teaching Peter to no longer view the world through his cultural categories, but to view the world through Christ. He sees Cornelius, this Roman centurion, humiliating himself before Peter, bowing down to him, a fisherman, one of the elites from a Roman culture that's so foreign bowing down to him, a nobody roughneck. 
And yet he comes with this posture of humility, bowing before him with all of his family and friends present with him that he brought and invited to be there, and they are all eagerly awaiting his arrival. And so Peter asks, Why am I here? Why did you send for me? Cornelius tells him about his vision of a man in bright clothing who said God had remembered him. God saw him and that he should send for Peter in Joppa. And then he says, we're all here because we want to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you. We want to hear it all. Now here Peter is in this house, this room, face to face with all these other people in this really awkward situation for him. But I think this had to be the moment where he recognized that Jesus was doing something far bigger than he ever imagined or understood. Because when he looked around that room, he saw something extraordinary. All these Gentile faces from another town that never showed up to any of his moments where he preached, and here they are, all desperate and hungry to hear the gospel. Why? Because God was making good on his promise. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He was gathering all the others unto himself. And when Peter saw their hunger for God and their eagerness for the gospel, when he came face to face with the other, that's when the most marvelous new thought crossed his mind. And he understood the vision and he said, now I understand that God shows no partiality. Do you have any idea how big of a deal it is for a Jew to say that? That is a life-changing, world-changing, upside-down kind of sentence. And Luke doesn't give us a window into Peter's processing during these few days. It just gives us his conclusion that the Spirit led him to. And we can put the pieces together by recognizing that the Spirit was leading Peter just simply to a deeper understanding of Jesus' teaching. It's essentially the realization that the law wasn't given so that Israel could keep it and generate their own self-righteousness. No, the law was given so that it might lead Israel to repentance. The law was intended to teach Israel how to look inward and see the corruption in their own hearts, not use the law to look outward at everybody else in contempt. It was about Peter seeing the uncleanness in his own heart and having a deeper desire for God and a hunger for him. And if he did, do you know who that would make Peter look like? Cornelius, who was desperate and hungry for the life of God. And in that moment, despite the world, the universe of differences between Peter and Cornelius, Peter realized that he and Cornelius had something deeply in common. It was their need for the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. And did you notice how Peter denied Jesus three times in the vision? Jesus knows what he's doing. It's actually, I think, reminding Peter of when he denied Jesus three times at the crucifixion. 
when Peter felt all of that guilt, all of that shame, all of that distance from God, all of that filth within him, and he felt so much distance between him and this God that he wanted to know. And nothing could he possibly eat in this world that could get rid of that guilt, that shame, and that uncleanness in his heart. Nothing he could eat could make him clean. All he had was his desperation. All he had was the forgiveness of Christ. And so, when Peter sees Cornelius in all of his desperation, he can say, yeah, I know that guy. And Peter embraced their common need. And he offered Cornelius the exact same thing that he himself needed. He preached the good news, the gospel of grace. He offered him Jesus. And the Spirit fell on Cornelius and his whole household and all of his friends and family. And friends, that is a moment where a new door burst wide open. Because now the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. The gospel was going out to the whole world. The gospel would go out to us. Because now God was beginning to gather all of the others unto himself. The Spirit advances the kingdom of God into this world by leading God's people into these strange and awkward encounters with the other so that they might see beyond all the multitude of differences and underneath that see what is common between them. It's their shared need of Jesus Christ. And to find that common ground is filled with the Spirit's power. Because common ground is a powerful thing. I'm a proud member of the Ku Klux Klan. Daryl Davis wasn't expecting to hear that, to say the least. Awkward is an understatement. Daryl's a Christian man. And he felt a deep curiosity about this man that sat across the table from him. So he decided that he would see if there could be a little common ground that could be discovered. He wanted to look beyond their obvious differences because this awkward situation awakened something within him. And he wanted to see what might happen if he could find some common ground. So he started talking about the music because that's the only thing he could think of in the moment. They ended up having a nice conversation about it. And at the end of the conversation, the man told Daryl, he said, you know what, if you, ever, if you ever come back here to play, I want you to give me a call. I'd like to come hear you. And this man slid Daryl his phone number. Turns out that Daryl plays at the Silver Dollar Lounge every six weeks. And so every six weeks, Daryl would give him a call. And every six weeks, that man would show up. Daryl would walk over to his table at the end of every show, and they would sit down. They'd share a table. They'd share a drink. They'd share a conversation. And then they found that they were sharing a friendship that grew over the course of years. And eventually that man left the KKK behind. And this friendship opened up Daryl to other opportunities to befriend 
other clan members. And one night while he was driving in his car, one of them said something that he'd heard so many times before. He said, you know, the black man is prone to violence because they have a gene in him. Daryl said, well, you've known me all this time. I've never been violent towards you. I've never even raised my voice. So what about me? And the man said, well, that just means that your gene is latent. hasn't activated yet. So Daryl drove along a little while in silence. And then he said, you know, when I come to think about it, all the serial killers I can think of, like Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ed Gein, David Berkowitz, those are all white men. That must mean you're a serial killer. I should be afraid of you. And the man said, that's ridiculous. I've never killed anybody, nor have I ever even thought about killing anybody. And Daryl said, well, that's just because your gene is latent. And the member said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And Daryl says, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's no more true of you than what you said is true of me. And a few months later, that man came to Daryl. He said, I've got something for you. Daryl opened up the box, and inside it was his KKK robe. He said, I don't believe it anymore. I'm out. And I want you to have this as a gift. This was really just the beginning for Daryl. Opened him up to so many other relationships that he was willing to explore and so many more awkward, strange encounters. And yet, there are former imperial wizards and grand dragons that now call Daryl their friend and brother. Daryl's walked their fiancés down the aisle on their wedding day. Daryl is now the godfather to their daughters and their sons. And over the course of 40 years, over 200 men have left the clan because of their friendship with Daryl. And he's got the robes to prove it. He's got the receipts to prove that finding common ground can be a powerful thing. And do you know who actually hates Daryl and denigrates his work? It's all the activist groups and the race relations groups and all the acronym groups that say they are all about progress. Yet they get so mad at Daryl because he's willing to do something that they are not. He's willing to sit down with the other to look beyond the glaringly obvious differences between them and to see a human being that has a complex story and needs grace. They don't like Daryl because his posture towards the world isn't rooted in hate and anger coming with all of its concessions that have to be made. Now it comes rooted in grace. Finding common ground can be a powerful thing. And friends, this story of Peter and Cornelius reminds us that we know the most powerful and 
beautiful common ground that you will ever find with another person. It's our shared need for Jesus Christ. And the Spirit promises to fill that space with power. No matter who you face and what their story is at the foundation of their humanity, you will find the same thing as yours. It's your need for Jesus. And we live in a time where there is so much, good Lord, there is so much division and hate and dividing lines and vitriol and anger and rage and hate all over the place, figuring out what else can we divide over. And the default has become that the only way we can really get along is if you first think like me and you talk like me and you agree with me and you accept me and you validate me and you're otherwise canceled until you do. You're not worth the time or the efforts until you embrace all of the concessions that I require of you. It's a world that's so weakly unwilling to have those awkward moments to come face to face with the other. And you know what? Let's be honest. This is an easy world to hate. If you're in the mood to hate, you can find something all day long. You will find something within five minutes of leaving this building if you're looking for it. This world is so easy to hate, and it's so easy for us to do the exact same thing as the world around us, where we are just as shaped by our cultural categories and not Christ. It's so easier to focus on what the world is doing and forget what God is doing and to walk around this world like we do not have the power of Christ that goes with us. Are we willing to be a church that allows the Spirit to reshape how we see the world? To stop viewing it through all those categories and conditions like the rest of the world does. But to have the courage to see it through Christ and our common need for him. Friends, that does not mean that we disregard differences hardly. But it does mean that we learn to look beyond them. Beyond politics, beyond sexuality, beyond preference, beyond our prejudice, beyond our lifestyle, beyond choices. And we see who need, who, someone who needs Jesus in all of those areas just as much as we need him. Because we were graced. And they must be too. And that's a church that's ready to go out with this God who is going out into this world. Going out to that Cornelius in your life, that coworker, to that neighbor, to that person you don't understand and you probably never will. To that person with all those tats and piercings that doesn't look good next to your buttoned up collared shirt. Or to that person that is all suburban chic and put together and doesn't go very well with your punk look. Or to that elderly person or that young man, that young woman, that single mom or that trans person or that straight person. Or that person you pass by all of the time and you've never thought to yourself, what's their name? There are so many people all around us that the Spirit might lead us to them. Are you willing to go? And I promise you this, when you do, it will be probably quite awkward. And yet, 
That's the very space that the Spirit fills with His power. Life-changing, eternal, unending, unstoppable power. And just maybe, what happened to Peter will happen to you when you come face to face with the other like he did. You will come to a far greater and bigger understanding of who Christ is and what he is doing in this world. And just think, if together, we as a church adopted this posture towards the world, we might also have the same realization that Peter did. That we have been brought into something far bigger and more beautiful than we ever knew before. And I'll just throw this in. I've heard some people say recently that they've had some friendships with some people and they don't know if they should invite them to church or not because they do not look like us. And they were afraid to invite them to church because of what this church might think. Friends, invite them. Bring them. They need to be here. We need them to be here. Make us uncomfortable. Make us squirm in our seats a little bit. Why? Because that's where the Spirit promises to move. And quite frankly, it'll put us all to that great question that we have to answer ourselves. God is going out to the world. Are we willing to go with him? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have a bunch of categories myself that I confess. I pray that you would topple those walls in our heart that would keep us from sharing in your heart. Help us to see this world around us through something more beautiful than all of the cultural categories that we have, yet cultural categories change like the wind with every generation, but you do not. We pray that you would guide us and lead us as a church. We pray that you would help us to admit that we are all slaves to our culture in so many ways, and yet you are the one who sets free. You're the one who is willing to guide us and lead us to give us new hearts, new eyes, new ears, and new words. We pray that you would give us the courage to see the other around us. And we're afraid. We're afraid to talk to those people. We're afraid of how we'll be received. We're afraid we won't know what to say. But just give us the boldness to fill that space with something. Knowing that we come, knowing the greatest thing of all, that they need you just like we do. Give us the courage to put ourselves in a position where your spirit promises to work. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord, and everybody said, Amen.